So hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. This is your host, Jenny Wise, and I'm joined today by two analysts at Forrester. We have Maxi Schmidt, a principal analyst on the CX team. Hello, Maxi. Hi, Jenny. And we have Sharvan Boskirk, who is making her CX Cast debut today. And she's a VP principal analyst on the CMO team here at Forrester. Hey, Shar. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Maxi. Thanks for including me. On today's episode, we are going to be tapping into your knowledge and some recent research that was done to answer the question of why do companies need to talk about value for customers today? This is something that it seems like companies should have set and working. So we're going to dive into what is value for customers and how can companies think about it more holistically. Back in July, you guys published a piece of research on this, and this topic of value for customers seems simple. It seems like companies should have this ready to go and that it's feeding into their strategies today, but this report was written. And so why did you write this report? What were you seeing or hearing that made this an important topic? There are a number of things that we've observed is that many companies talk about delivering value for customers, but when you talk to those same companies, it doesn't seem like they're having a very clear definition of what this means. So first of all, it's at the level of what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about the value for a customer or are we even talking about value of a customer? Like, sure, you are observing a lot of companies trying to extract value from customers, right? Yes, as Jenny mentioned in my intro, I sit on the marketing side of things. And I think when you talk to companies about value, they almost always default to a lifetime value question. But if you think about the equation of lifetime value, it's about how much value a customer is bringing to a business, not how much value a business is bringing to a customer. And so we wanted to unravel that. Where did businesses get lost along the way and get so focused on how much they could wring out of a customer rather than were they even doing anything that a customer wanted? Were they even creating a business and products and services that resonate at all with an audience? And that's one of the problems is that as you talk to companies and you ask them, how do you define value for customers? It's very hazy on what this even means. So we've done a deep dive into that value concept. There's a lot of existing research and we looked at that and we looked at what is it even value mm-hmm. for customer? That's an interesting question because we've talked about values before on the podcast. And sometimes when you talk about values, it's what are your beliefs and what do you stand for and how can companies relay that? But then there are things that people value. And Char, your perspective is really interesting because then there's what does the business think the value of that customer is? So with all of these different perceptions of the word value, what did you end up landing on as the definition or the types of value that companies should be thinking about? We kept it really simple when it comes to the definition of value for a customer. The value for a customer is always grounded in what a customer is trying to accomplish. So the value for a customer is what a customer gets versus mm-hmm. what they have to give up. So they get value when they don't have to sacrifice as much as they get, right? Mm-hmm. And if they have to sacrifice more than they get, then value is destroyed. So that's a simple definition, the comparison of what a customer gets versus what that same customer has to give up to get that. And And I'll just add one other thing that we focused on in our definition is that value is a perception, which I think matters, especially to audiences that care about customer experience, because so much of an experience is contextually based. My experience of something is based on the moment that I'm in, the people that I'm with, the circumstances of the experience. 
And likewise, my experience of value or my perception of value might be something very different from circumstance to circumstance. What I care about in this situation might be different than what I care about in another situation or what I'm willing to give up in order to get something might be very different from circumstance to circumstance. So when I've been talking to companies about this, I talk about the trade-off as Maxi described, what you get versus what you give up. And then I also talk about the fact that it is a perception of what I'm getting for what I give up that might be very circumstantial, might be very contextually based, might be something that I have a completely different perception of the exact same experience when I'm in a different situation. Exactly. And that's the crux of this whole value topic is that it is a perception. Just think of, for example, me needing a transport to the airport. I personally don't appreciate, for example, business practices of some rideshare apps. But I will do it because in that situation, I don't want to spend the money on a cab. In another situation, if maybe somebody pays the money for me, I would use a cab because then I don't have to make that sacrifice of going with an Uber. And so the idea that each individual person has specific values, like a worldview that they believe right. in, they're in a specific situation, and they're also comparing a situation with different alternatives. And those three things will affect what they think value is. Mm -hmm. So think about, for example, if you buy a car. You could say, oh, I can put a clear price tag on that car. But if I see that my neighbor got the very same car for $10,000 cheaper, mm -hmm. then suddenly it doesn't feel all that great anymore, does it? Right. Yeah. So even something that seems as <laughs> hardcore as a price tag, the perception of value can differ based on your situation, your comparisons. That's linked to the math. So the definition seemed like this really simple math equation, but it's not because the customer's perception of the value is going to change based on what that customer's beliefs are, based on their context. And what is the third? The comparisons that and they the have. And the comparisons that they have. It sounds like the definition of value just got more complex. <laughs> so good. You know, so for companies to think about it now, how do they begin to parse out what type of value to deliver against and how to understand all of those components? In our research, what we've done is we've broken down this idea of value for customer into four dimensions to make it Not more complicated, but less complicated. Mm -hmm. Because I think the worst thing is if we all just continue to talk about value and everybody means something different by it, right? So we right. tried to put a stake in the ground. Here is the types of dimensions. And that's based on our research on academic literature. And the dimensions, we've already foreshadowed them a little bit. The first dimension is a sense of functional value. This is, are you able to achieve a purpose with an OKEs, right? Mm -hmm. It's not too difficult to achieve a purpose. That's a functional value. The second one is an experiential value. So you have pleasant sensations or interactions. The third one is an economic value. That means do you save more money than you pay? So this is that the price very often goes in there. And then mm -hmm. the last type is what we call the symbolic value, which is about meaning. So think, for example, about a company like Nordstrom, The price of the items is, I think, reasonable, but maybe a bit higher priced than somewhere else. So your economic value will be a bit lower than in a different retailer. The functional value is really, really good because it's very easy to return items. For example, you have great store people helping you find the exact right thing for you. With the same store people, the experiential value is also great because you're being greeted and having very pleasant interactions. And mm -hmm. finally, the symbolic value, the meaning, I can afford to buy at Nordstrom because that symbolic value has both an internally directed as also a, an externally directed thing. So I am accomplished enough to be able to buy there, for example. I earn enough money to buy there that creates meaning for me. Or I really appreciate maybe Nordstrom's mission. And so I like buying there, which mm -hmm. probably isn't so great for Nordstrom. But uh, we, we, we stumbled over, or Shar actually, um, uh, just earlier this week, shared an example from KLM about that meaning that you might be creating by shopping at KLM. I was just reading through some of the year-in-review campaigns, things that different entities put together as the best campaigns of the year. 
And one of the ones that was featured was KLM's Don't Fly campaign. Very interesting, where KLM is actually encouraging people to not fly short-haul flights from Amsterdam and to take the train instead because of fuel costs and environmental concerns. And so it's totally alternate in terms of an airline that you think would be encouraging people to fly them as much as possible. KLM is actually buying train tickets for people who will cash in a short-haul flight on KLM. And it's all about this symbolic value. It's about if KLM stands for environmental concern, and that's something that you care about, then you are actually gaining value from KLM, even though you're not flying with them, that you feel like you are part of a tribe, you are working with a brand that understands you, you are getting meaning in your life, and you are exchanging that meaning with a brand. And I think KLM is banking on that type of value because this isn't delivering an economic value, for example. It's just trying to create goodwill. It's just trying to create that feeling of meaning between their brand and the audiences that they think they care the most about. So a really interesting example of almost unmarketing to try to create a different type of value than where I think most brands default usually, which is function or economic value. This is very much about how can we do something else? How can we bring you meaning beyond the product and services that we sell? Yeah, and for those of you who have listened to the podcast to earlier episodes, this is exactly where this values-based consumer research, for example, of Rick Parrish and Anderley Life fits in. Those are the kinds of consumers who want to improve what we do to the environment. They will get value from something like KLM. There are other mm -hmm. customers who might not care about that. They wouldn't get right. any value out of this. So the crux beyond this concept of value is this perception we talked about. It's these four types of value, the functional, experiential, economic, and symbolic. But it's also an ability of a company to understand what do my customers want? What value do they want from the interactions with me? What do we as a brand stand for? And what can we as a brand stand for? And where is the overlap there? Mm -hmm. Where's the sweet spot between those two things? Because as I just said, KLM does not appeal to all travelers. They appeal to a very specific segment that is environmentally conscious. I think the magic of these four dimensions is that it's giving companies permission to think about value in multiple dimensions. So I really think, and Maxie and I found this when we would talk to companies, that if they had any idea if they were creating value for customers, which frankly most companies didn't, then they would think almost exclusively of the economic value and maybe the functional value. It was like, well, we offer low prices or we offer free shipping, or we do something that is associated with a price discount, this idea, the additional dimensions of having experiential value or having symbolic value says, first of all, not everybody cares about economic value all the time. And as a business, you could actually create better business value for yourself by understanding some of these other dimensions people care about, that you might in fact be offering discounts when you don't need to or you might be chasing functional excellence when you don't need to. And so we kind of felt like opening up these four dimensions gave businesses some nuance, some greater mm -hmm. capability to actually connect with things beyond just price, which feels a little bit easy to duplicate in an environment where competition is steep and you can only discount so far. So why not come up with some other things that might create value and just help explore how to do that? That's my reaction listening to you share these examples as well, is that that KLM example, that goes counter to anything that you would expect a company to do. 
And especially with thinking about their lifetime customer value and how much people spend and how can we get them to spend more and take even more flights. But by introducing that, there's this other option, which will also drive customer loyalty or brand loyalty or future long-term customer value. It lets them focus their energy there. We also found in the research that sometimes companies are focused on the wrong value for their primary audience. So in the KLM example, we've got a company that is deliberately pivoting to focus on something very specific and alternative. The other example I was going to reference here, which Maxine knows really well, is the Timberland example. So Timberland, from about 2006, had seen just flat growth, wasn't seeing any uptick in overall retail sales. And some quantitative research uncovered that they had been focusing on the wrong value. They had been promoting a very functional value, very much about the quality and the integrity of the gear for hardcore outdoorsmen. And it turned out that their primary audience was actually a little bit more of an active fashion audience, somebody who cared about looking in an active and fit way. So more of a symbolic value. I want to look stylish. I want to look like I'm outdoorsy. Not that I'm actually a rock climber and I care about the integrity of certain gear that I'm going to buy from Timberland. And so they pivoted their products, their partnerships, their suppliers, and their marketing materials to focus more on making that audience feel like they belonged to a fashion-forward group, and doing so lifted their revenue. So another interesting example of if you just default to the value that you think is right for your customers without actually tapping into what your customers really care about, you may be completely misfiring against the things they actually value. In that way, then, having these four categories helps to also focus research efforts on what is it that our customers care about in each of these categories before you even get to how do we then weigh them? Because that's an example where just doing user research and understanding your audience and what it is that they're turning to you for as a company seems like a really simple step. But maybe if you weren't thinking about that prior, you wouldn't have had that focus or effort or investment in looking into user research to answer those questions. Right, because you'd probably have a bias towards one or two of those types of value right. and wouldn't think of the other. So these four types of value give you an easy checklist. Are we really thinking about all the kind of value that a customer might derive from us? Are we thinking about symbolic and experiential value, for example? And Char, to your point earlier, we found that companies who were further on in their transformation to be more customer-centric, further on in their life cycle, are starting to pivot. So they start maybe with offering a good product at good prices, but then realize that competition for that is fierce. Right. And they need to do something else. Right. And then they uh, pivot towards an experiential value and or a symbolic value in order to beat out competition as they move through the life cycle, right? When they from growth, when they then become a mature category. Right. So how you then differentiate right, is exactly. going to shift and exactly. focus your energy exactly. on one or the other. So you can imagine, and I think you have some images of this in the report, a quadrant where you're focusing your energy towards one end of the axis or another, whether it's experiential or functional or symbolic or economic. That would change depending on different segments or personas, though. And I'm thinking, for example, let's say I am someone who's just very driven by convenience. And so that is all that I care about. And so I imagine that probably fits into the experiential component, right? Can I accomplish my goal, but then how can I accomplish it as quickly and easily and conveniently as possible? Whereas someone else may also say, okay, well, I want this functional component to be able to achieve my goal, but I'm willing to put in the time or the energy 
to do that. Jenny, that's an excellent point, actually. We talked earlier about getting versus giving up, right? Right. So giving up is not a price tag. Giving up is a price tag plus the time it takes, plus the how you feel when you have to do business with a company you don't actually want to do business with. Right. Right. So that's the giving up. And, and I agree with you. You are probably more in tune with that functional value. But if every company offered a similar functional value, then you wouldn't know where to go. Mm. So those companies then need to differentiate themselves in terms of other value that they offer. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So they all have sort of a table stake that they have to meet. And then the way that they'll appeal to different audiences and differentiate is going to be what does their symbolic value look like? What does their experiential value look like? For example, for a CX audience, the way that I think about this is that this really is rooted in the journeys because a journey is always a combination of a persona that has the journey and some kind of specific scenario that they're in. Mm-hmm. And if you were to try to think about how much value are we delivering to customers or trying to do research into what should we be delivering, you could start by mapping out the journey, generally understanding what the overarching customer goal is. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you can talk about that persona, that overarching customer goal might be to feel good about themselves. Think about opening a bank account. One situation might be that there is a mother of a college-age kid who wants to open a bank account to transfer money to that child, right? That's a very specific scenario, specific persona. So the kind of value that we're getting from this account opening journey is that there's, of course, something around economic value. I don't want to pay fees or I don't want to, Mm -hmm. ideally, it's a free account, right? Then there's a functional value of I am able to use that account to transfer money to my child Mm -hmm. easily, ideally. The experiential value is, you know, what's the branch look like? What is the digital experience? Is it smooth? Is it cool? Is it exciting? And then the meaning might be that this person feels like a good parent because they can provide for their kids because they've done this. Right? So the self-meaning that they can do that. And that's a very, very specific journey with a very specific persona in mind. You can understand at the grand scale what kind of value this customer is seeking from this journey. That's a great example. And when I'm thinking, though, about those different components that you just mentioned that all matter, it's very hard to imagine that there is one role in a company who is defining what the strategy looks like for all of these different personas and also the right combination of, because it sounds like it's a combination of, the pricing, the product and the features, what does the in-store experience look like, and then how does the person feel, and is it aligned with their goals or missions as a parent in this example? So are there different parts of the organization who are focused on each of these four components of value? And is that okay if it is different types of people and teams in an organization instead of sort of one holistic vision that's being created? Right. I mean, you have in many cases, people in the customer experience function are mostly focused on the experiential value and some of that functional value, the ease, right? Mm -hmm. I always say if I get $10 every time somebody asks me for ease in a call, I'd be wearing a really, really big watch, right? Yes, an effort. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then you find people in pricing who are responsible for more of the economic value. People in product management are responsible for that functional value. And then people in brand, for example, contribute very much to that symbolic value. So it is indeed a combination. And the thing that we argued in our research is that this is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can have people responsible for different things, but what you can't have is that this is not, not organized. And that's what's happening now is that everybody sees their own piece of the puzzle, tries to optimize for it and doesn't look for the collateral damage yeah. on the rest. Yeah. Like, I think, too, what we wanted to do was raise the visibility of value for customer as an enterprise-wide issue so that whatever your role is, if you're responsible for the product design or product development, if you're responsible for pricing, if you're responsible for marketing, that you might be thinking, oh, this has never been something that came up in the conversations that we were having internally within our teams or across teams. 
So it was less about identifying the single person or function that now has to own value, but instead to raise the visibility of it so that everyone is thinking about overall, are we focused on creating value for our customer? When we were doing this research, we came across this great business school case study from the 80s, which talked about how kind of building off of Peter Drucker's The Theory of the Business, and it basically said businesses exist to provide a service or capability that a customer, a person cannot do on her own. And I just love that so much because it puts into perspective, you know, once upon a time, we all created our own clothes and our own food and our own transportation. And then we gradually got to the part where we couldn't do that ourselves. I can't make my own shoes, so I buy them from someone else. And a business exists to provide that service, to provide a capability that I cannot do on my own. And so if a business thinks about that orientation, I exist to do something that a person can't do without me, that changes the whole orientation to how they're doing business. It becomes less about I'm in business to grow shareholder value. I'm in business to grow revenues in this market. I'm in business to outcompete my arch nemesis. No, I'm in business to provide a good or service that a person can't create on her own. And if everybody thinks that, then all of a sudden you start having a lot more harmony around how groups are working together. You have an orientation which is focused on not just did I accomplish the goals that my team got assigned, But am I working with this other team to create a good and service that our customers actually need? And so I think if really no one knows what's going on at your business, then maybe it's a good idea to have somebody pick up the mantle for this and communicate around the organization that it matters. But our goal was to try to help everybody say, oh, you know what? We haven't been thinking about it in this way. And if I think about it in this way, how does that change the way I work, the way I collaborate, and the goals that I care about? I love that. And selfishly, as a CX UX person here who likes to advocate for human-centered design, that would be great if this is that lever that gets every part of the organization to speak this language and understand that message because it aligns very much so with some other types of frameworks and processes that we talk about like jobs to be done. What is the person trying to do? What do they have to do? And how can you then, the company, help them do it? And then service design. How can you wrap services to help them do it better or be more confident or do it more easily too? So I hope that that works. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, points, to that, a, that points to a bigger problem is that why aren't more people in a customer experience, like hardcore customer experience role, thinking about jobs to be done that way? Yeah. Like, and why aren't they mapping journeys and then seeing where are we destroying value and right. where are we creating value? And on balance, does this journey create or destroy value for a customer? Mm -hmm. And what can we do about it? We always also need to be conscious of the fact that this is a journey that a customer goes through to accomplish something that they want to accomplish. This is not just the interactions with us. So a customer will turn to us to achieve a certain thing, but they might turn to others as well. So think about if you're a patient. Yes, you're going to a primary care physician because you want a diagnosis, but you also go to your friend and you say, I'm feeling so shitty. Can you please help me feel better? You might go to a government organization to get some insights into disease management. You might go to an association of people who have that same illness that you have to get support. So you're looking at all of these different people to get value. And we as companies often just think about that thing, that one thing the customers do with us. So we need to think about what are the other actors in this case. And then you can do interesting stuff. This is basically what what USAA's auto circle is, or it's it's called differently now, but but the idea is still the same, that they know that when somebody wants to buy a car, they'll need an insurance, they need the car itself, they need a dealer and so on. So they understand the person is trying to get a car. This is not about a bank interaction. So who are the different people that that person has to interact with? And 
can't we coordinate some of that for the customer in a way that makes it easier for the customer? And that's how that auto circle idea really works well, right? You get a certified dealer, you have insurance, you have even review sites that USAA works together with. And so USAA covers a lot of what a customer would do to create value as they're trying to buy a car. That's a great point that there's this value network. It's like, right, when you care about healthcare, here's a group of things and people that you turn to. When you care about your finances, here's a group of people and organizations and companies that you turn to. And when you begin to think that way beyond just how are you delivering on the customer values or delivering value to them, to then look at that larger network, this also helps you not just write the ship of what you're doing, but also to begin to look at adjacent opportunities and more ways to differentiate and innovate. So that's great to expand this concept of value beyond what your company does today to look at that more holistic picture. I think it also speaks to the challenge of the flattening customer experience index wars that has been happening over the course of the last few years. Mm -hmm. Maxie and I talked a lot about that too. Why is it that customer experiences aren't necessarily getting better, even at companies that are good at it? And we talked a lot about how maybe this is part of why, that if you're just focused on polishing up the friction in an experience, that can only get you so far. But when you start thinking about, am I actually creating value for my customer, then that takes you past wherever you've been stuck on the customer experience side of things. You come up with the right improvements to your customer experience that are creating value. Or maybe you start changing other things in addition to your customer experience, which changes the overall brand relationship that your customer has with you. So we saw this also as sort of that launch pad or starting point or inflection point where you move past wherever you've been today and you get to this next level because you're starting to think about value. Right. Mm-hmm. And that gets at the heart of why the company exists in the first place. The company exists to provide value for customers because that in turn will create business value and will make the company sustainable. And we've all gotten away from that a bit. And this research is trying to get give us tools and perspectives to to get back to that idea, that notion, as, as Char so eloquently put it, right? Raise the visibility of this enterprise-wide. That was very well said. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you both for taking the time to do this research and help to create a framework in which companies can think about value for customers, what it means, how they can also then use that to identify where should they be prioritizing their effort? What don't they know about their customer that they need to know? How can this also become a rallying cry to get everyone in the organization to take this customer-centric view and even lead to innovation going forward? Right, right. And the research goes on. So uh, next research, for example, right now is about how to measure value for customers. So if any of you would like to be interviewed, please reach out. I'm so glad you said that because that was actually going to be a question. So follow up episode on that coming up. Shar, Maxi, thank you so much for joining us today. There will be a link to this report titled Value for Customers, the four dimensions that matter in the show notes. Thank you for listening and chat with you next week.